Hey folks, we're back. Very excited to be joined here by Representative Matt Clayman in the the House Judiciary Committee room. Right. It's good to be here today, and thanks for thanks for coming to join me. We tried doing this for a while, but the House kept meeting. You guys kept having your meetings. Well, sometimes the people's business. We need to take care of things. We're, we're, we're here. Um, you're the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, which you were last year as well. Last two years. That's right. What last couple sessions, which. Uh, that was kind of a topic of, of kind of a lot of a lot of energy going on in that committee. Right, you, you were kind of the topic of conversation a lot by some of the top, you know, the things being discussed. So, well, the things discussed, but as you you probably remember from watching, I, I I was kind of surprised to learn it myself. But according to people who watched the the three sixty North legislative TV, it was the most popular show on legislative TV by a wide margin. Yeah, well, and there was also a good skit uh, about it last year. I don't know if you saw it or not, but it was... I, I didn't see the skit, but I heard good things was, about it was the quite, skit. It was quite funny. Yeah. Um, so before we started, I was doing a mic check with you. Right. And you said, should I do the Jerry Lewis... The Jerry Lewis announcer's test. And I said, I don't, what is that? And then I'm going I'm to ask you if you don't mind doing it again. Because sure. Because it's, it's pretty incredible you even know that. So can you can you do it again? Sure. Uh, Jerry Lewis announcer's test. This is a different way to count to 10. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four limerick oysters, five corpulent porpoises, six pairs of Don Alverso's tweezers, 7,000 Macedonians in full battle array, eight brass monkeys from the ancient sacred crypts of Egypt, nine sympathetic diabetic on old men on roller skates with a marked propensity for procrastination and sloth, 10 lyrical, spherical, diabolical denizens of the deep whose hall stalled around the corner of the quay of the quivery all at the same time. That's amazing. That, that might be the most fascinating thing ever said on landmine radio by a, by a representative. Well, I, I appreciate that respect. So, what, so that's, you said that's all the sounds? All the phonetics, all the phonetic sounds. Wow. So that's, uh, that's great. Um, so you've been in the legislature. This is your, is it third or fourth? This is my third term, beginning of my fifth year. Okay, so before this, I want to talk a bit about your kind of history. You're a lawyer, which is uh, apropos being the chair of the Judiciary Committee. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your legal background, and then also your time you were on the Assembly, and you served as mayor for a while. So Sure. So I actually first came to Alaska in 1980 to work in work in a mining camp. And then a few years after that, I went to law school, attended law school at the University of Texas, and then clerked for a year in the federal court in El Paso. And El Paso in 1987 and 88 was a very different place, although with a lot of similarities to El Paso today. And then after I finished working for the federal court in El Paso, I came to Alaska and have been working as a lawyer ever since. Where where was the mining camp at? Uh, the first summer of the mining camp actually was all over. We were in some in the foothills around Birch Creek, uh, east of Fairbanks, kind of out the Steese Highway near Circle City and Circle Hot Springs, and it was a remote helicopter access mining camp. Wow, and, that must have been just an experience. Oh, it was a tremendous experience and totally eye-opening, eye-opening about Alaska really is what first got me hooked on Alaska. But the start of the summer, it was about six weeks at that camp on Big Windy Creek, 
And then after that, we, we were in different places. I was working, I did work in a camp near Healy, and then also out in McGrath. They were doing some exploration in McGrath. And then after McGrath, we went down to Ketchikan and were working in an exploration camp outside of Ketchikan, Ketchikan on one of the islands. You've been all over doing. So you ever have a committee like where mining is a topic? Well, mining hasn't been a topic not, in not, judiciary. Not but here, but other other committees you've been on. Have you ever? I actually am not on resources, so I haven't been. I haven't heard a lot of mining issues in specific. Pretty cool if you were like, yeah, I'm, I know a little bit about that. Um, so well, that's actually one of the areas that Senator Bishop and I we often talk about mining and placer mining and kind of the use of heavy equipment and and how that works. Isn't a uh, representative Talarica? Wasn't he involved in mining? Very involved with coal mining coal. and the Usabelli coal mine. My second summer up here was actually in the in the in the uh, Cantitian of foothills north of Denali Park, and to get to the mining site, we'd have to drive through the park, and so that was my placer mining experience, and that was 1982. So, did you grow up in Texas, or grew up in Texas? See, I'm from New Mexico, so I said El Paso, which is kind of close to Las Cruces. I grew up in Albuquerque. Okay, but we used to go back when it was kind of less dangerous. We'd go to Juarez, you know, growing up, and on the weekends or something, and. It was always a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, and that was actually, that was common when I was living in El Paso. That was a favorite dinner excursion. You'd go across the border to Juarez, yeah, and not, it was not. really fast to go to go south. There was little restriction to cross mm-hmm. south. And even in 1987, 88, there wasn't a whole lot slowing you down to get back across the border going north. But I think now a it's, lot fewer people cross the border. It's a lot dangerous with the cartels. We, we went there back in, when I was 18, I guess back in 2000. Two or three before I graduate graduate high school, we would go there with our friends. We we're eighteen. You can you can drink in Mexico at eighteen, you know, so you can go over there and right. have a beer, and it's kind of fun. But now, yeah, I think with the cartels and the the violence, the the traffic has gone gone way down. But fun place, yeah, fun fun town. Well, actually, actually, in the world of different things that you can do in El Paso, the the judge that I worked for had a real fondness for horse racing, and so oh, he and really? I and you know there's a track track just. Sun, Sunland Park that's just west of El Paso, actually in New Mexico, because mm-hmm. horse racing isn't legal in Texas. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. So so Sunland Park, and he and I would sometimes see each other on Sunday and Saturday afternoon going to the races to watch the horses run. And then sometimes uh, you couldn't bet you couldn't bet on races that weren't in New Mexico, but, but in Juarez you could go across the border and bet on horse races like in the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont Stakes and the Preakness. And so he would sometimes say, any chance you're going to Juarez this weekend? Because if you are, maybe you can go put a bet on the Kentucky Derby for me. Oh, that's awesome. But I, I wasn't that committed to horse racing to yeah, go that, across and just bet on those races. Another level of commitment. When that's I was right. in Australia, I spent a year in Australia in 2017, and horse racing is just huge there. And, yeah. and greyhound racing. So every pub you go to, almost every pub, they have TV screens and they have the computers and you can... You can bet, and it's it's all the races in Australia, but it's races like all over the world, right? And they're all kind of on the screen, and you can bet, and it's a big kind of horse racing culture in New Mexico too. Yeah, and the horse racing is kind of a thing. Yeah. So you came back, you went to law school, and you liked Alaska from the mining experiences, and exactly. Wow, that's, that's kind of like me. I moved here in '04. I was 19. I'd never been here, but I was it appealed to me, and I've been here ever since. Was couple trips to you know, Australia, but right. um, once, once you come here, it's very, it's a very um, encapsulating place. Oh, it's just a, it's the center of the center of the universe as far as I'm concerned. So you started practicing law right away, or were you doing? Uh, yeah, I came up and started practicing law in 1988, and continue to practice law today. And you were with. Um, I think Lane, Lane Powell for a while, because my friend Margaret Stock used to work there. Right. So I actually, when I first came to Alaska, I worked for the public defender here in Juneau. 
and and worked for the public defender for a few years. And then, then after that, I, I eventually opened my own firm and ran my own firm for, for, for a short period. And then I went to work for a firm called Preston Gates & Ellis that's now, well, now it's called Preston, actually now it's called K&L Gates, but at the time it was called Preston Gates & Ellis. So you were doing legal stuff, and at some point you said, I want to run for the assembly. Exactly. What, what, what made you want to do that? Well, I'd, you know, I'd been involved in public policy concerns, and I'd, I'd volunteered on campaigns over the years because I, I really think the public process is vital and that we really need not just candidates but the public to be involved in who we have for elected officials and, and what kind of things matter to the public. And so I'd, I'd been involved, and people would sometimes say, why don't you think about running? And, and in some ways I was somewhat reluctant to run. In other ways I was really quite interested because I thought I might be able to be a kind of a good voice of kind of a fair process and try to try to help balance competing interests in the in the whole process uh, of legislating and and my initial interest in the assembly was that because it was local government and the assembly meets on Tuesday nights in Anchorage and so in terms of having having young kids at home I wouldn't be coming down to Juneau and disappearing for three or four months at a time I could actually maybe Tuesday nights that dad might be gone and not make it to dinner because he's at the assembly meeting. But by Tuesday night late, I'd be home and I'd be there for breakfast on Wednesday morning. It's not the 2017 six months in Juneau or seven, whatever, what was it, 200 days or something? Right. But but even in the assembly, uh, I have a lot of, I go to the meetings and a lot of my friends are on there, people I know. And I mean, there's a lot of the committee meetings and there's other, it's not just a Tuesday meeting, right? There's other stuff happening kind of right. during the week. And there's work sessions you need to attend, and you need to attend to constituent interest. But it's just a very different you're, you're an dynamic because you're because you're home every night. Did you so? What, did you win your first race? I didn't. I ran actually my first race. I ran against Dan Sullivan. He was then an assembly member. Oh, and he Mayor, was running Mayor for Dan. His, he wasn't Mayor Dan then. He was <laughs> he was another assemblyman, and he he ran. It was up for his third term, and I ran against him, and he he won that race. So then you want you ran again when he was termed out, or? Uh, actually, what happened was that the other, because in Westside, in Anchorage, they have five two-member assembly districts. So West Anchorage has two representatives mm-hmm. on the assembly. And so the person that was serving in the other seat didn't run for re-election two years later. So in 2007, I ran and, and won election to the assembly. So then in 2008, Mark Begich uh, was mayor. Right. And he won the U.S. Senate seat. Right, and he res- resigned, and you were you were the chair of the assembly at the time. Right, so I was elected in two thousand seven, and then in two thousand eight, there in the assembly election, there was a few more change of seats in terms of kind of the general political perspective, and so I was elected chair of the assembly in the spring of two thousand eight. Because the assembly historically, I mean, at least I moved here in '04, was always for a long <clears> time it was very kind of more conservative, I guess you'd say, and now it seems to have kind of gone more progressive. But you were kind of in a kind of transitional. Period or well, the, the, actually, that really was one of the key points in the transition. Was that was when we went from a, I think a kind of a three more progressive and eight more conservative in the assembly in the election of two thousand eight. That changed from to six more progressive and five more conservative. And so that coalition of six is what is the the majority in the assembly mm-hmm. that led to my unanimous election as assembly chair. So when he was running for. U.S. Senate, you you knew if he if he wins, um, I get to be I get to be mayor. Well, I'm not sure "get to be" is the right word, but I I certainly was aware that if he won the election, that I would be that I would likely become the acting mayor. That's right. So he he resigned, and you were you were 
So then what happened to your seat? Was there a, because it was so close to the election, was there a... Well, interestingly enough, the Anchorage Charter doesn't provide for replacing that seat. Oh, really? So so what happens is on January, around January 1st, he resigned to be, to go become U.S. Senator, and I was sworn in immediately to become the acting mayor. And then from that point forward, the assembly has 10 seats on it and 10, 10 people voting instead of 11. And then... After I was unsuccessful in running to be elected mayor, then I my term as acting mayor ended when Mayor Sullivan was sworn in, and and then I went back to the assembly. So my term on the assembly was actually about a little over two years on the assembly, then six months as acting mayor, and then another six months approximately on the assembly. Oh, so you went, you went back to your seat. Oh, okay. I didn't think about that. Interesting. Yeah. It's well, just the way the charter operates. Well, that makes sense because, yeah, if you don't end up if there's a new mayor, if you didn't run or if you lost or then you need to go, it makes sense. So so after that happened, you kind of totally went from the assembly, moved into the mayor, you just became mayor. Right. Whole different, wow. Right. Has there been, how many, has it happened before in the past? And has there been other in, mayors that have left or resigned? Or? Since unification in Anchorage, or actually I believe since statehood when we Anchorage became a state, I think I'm the only person where Alaska. In, in Alaska, Alaska stated when I'm the only person that I'm aware of that has served as acting mayor since Alaska statehood. And it's certainly the only time since unification of the city of Anchorage and the municipality into a single municipality. I'm the only one that served as acting mayor. Okay, so you, you did the assembly and the mayor and then I guess you ran in, was it 12? Or I was elected to the house in 2014. 14, okay. And... Um, You've been here ever since, huh? Right. So you, as a lawyer, you were, I guess, in your sec- were you on the ju- Judiciary Committee, your first? I was on the Judiciary Committee. And interestingly enough, we had a really fascinating conversation, not a conversation, but we've been looking into this whole question. You've, you've followed some of the Justin Schneider case. Right. The, and, yeah. and this whole issue about whether he got credit for his electronic monitoring. And so I when I heard this whole thing about why the judge had to give him credit for the elect- time on electronic monitor, I thought that wasn't what we did in the House Judiciary Committee. And I actually, just in the last couple of weeks, we've gone back and found the place in the Judiciary Committee where we were talking about credit for electronic monitoring and treatment. And there's a whole conversation between me on the Judiciary Committee with Representative Wilson on the very topic about judges giving credit for electronic monitoring. And it's really clear from that whole conversation that judges have complete discretion. They don't have to give the, they don't have to give the credit. So uh, Judge Corey, he called in, didn't he, a few while back into the committee after he was, he was a private citizen, he called in. I'm told he called into the Senate committee hearing, but I, he has not called into House Judiciary. Okay, yeah, it was the Senate, right, right. So, I mean, I don't know if, if you're allowed to say much about what you think, but he wasn't retained. Do you, do you have a, an opinion on that, or can you talk well, about that? Oh, of course I can talk about it. I I mean, I've, I've known Mike Corey for many years. I've actually played hockey with him on a, hockey, on a city league hockey team in Anchorage for more years than I can remember, and and I've been involved with him on cases when I was uh, when I was in a, a practice involving a lot of personal injury matters. Uh, he was often a defense attorney, I think, on two or three different occasions. And I, I distinctly remember a trial we actually had in Kodiak when he was the defense lawyer and I was the plaintiff's lawyer. And we, we tried the case. And I think when the case was over, we got a note from the judge telling us that, that he really appreciated the fact that we proceeded through the whole trial with a real... Uh, 
with a real degree of civility and courtesy towards the other side. And although we didn't agree on things, we were effective working with the court and we answered the court's questions and provided documents when they needed them. And so he was very pleased with how he did. So I, I really have seen Mike Corey all over mm-hmm. the, all, all kinds of circumstances. He's a very thoughtful, caring, uh, really decent decent human. And I think he was doing a really good job as a judge. I think he got... He got like he un- got, unfair shake, or a, well, I think he. Well, I'm not sure you can say unfair. He got in a situation where he made a decision as as a judge, and I think he probably didn't think through all the uh, the ways he might have handled it differently. He's probably thought about it all of them since yeah, then. But sure. I think he made some decisions that got opened him up to criticism, and I think that they those criticisms took on a life of their own, and and that's that's part of any judge. Any judge, you can make a single decision in a single case, and and if the public really pays attention to it you can get voted out that's yeah, I don't, I don't, that's part of our system i don't think I, I think he might have been the only one or maybe one of only a handful of judges who have not been retained who were recommended uh, for retention by the judicial council that's true i think he's the he may be the first one that wasn't recommended for retention there have been a few judges that have been recommended to be voted out and they've been voted right, out. yeah but he was recommended to be retained and um yeah it's interesting i did a podcast with a uh, former chief justice walter carbonetti last week and we had a conversation about, you know, the kind of the mandatory minimums in the 90s. And, and they've really, in a lot of ways, they've they've let lawmakers and states and even, like, you know, National Congress, they've made it very difficult for judges to, it's almost like a formula. He was talking about this and misdemeanor and, and you go down and then that's kind of where this, more or less where the sentence is. Yeah, that's, it's actually one of the interesting parts about this whole conversation. You'll hear people say, well, we want to give discretion back to the judges. But the vast majority of criminal law legislation that occurs both on a national level and on a state level is almost all about taking discretion away from the judges. Right. Part of the history in Alaska with with crime laws was that in the 1970s, what we started seeing was a real disparity in sentences for the same offense in some rural courthouses and urban courthouses. Yeah, he referenced that study. There was a study, right? Yeah. There was, he referenced that. Yeah, there's, there was study and a lot of evidence to show that there was just huge disparity. You'd have somebody of the same conduct getting six and eight years and another person getting six months. And so the when we passed a, ma- a large total criminal code revision that took effect in 1980, the, the part of the purpose of that was to bring uniformity to sentencing so there were more consistent sentences throughout the state. And, and of course, what you're doing as a legislature is you're taking the discretion away from the judges. You're saying you have to make the sentences fit within these frameworks. Well, I think there was, you know, in the 80s, there was a whole issue of, of like, you know, the powder cocaine versus the crack cocaine, and somebody with powder cocaine, like you said, gets six months, and somebody with same deal, crack, same same amount gets, you know, six years. Right. And um, But it seems like the pendulum went so far to the other side with these mandatory minimums and the three strikes and— we don't have we don't have three strikes, or do we? We didn't have three strikes, and and actually the powder distinction between powder cocaine and crack cocaine was actually more of a federal issue and less of a state issue. Okay. Here in Alaska, we didn't have that yeah, stark was, sentencing disparity. I was talking about kind of New York City, the whole yeah. in the eighties. Yeah. Um, so you you've been here at a time when this. I mean, I think it's kind of not as hot as a topic anymore. It's still being talked about, but for a while, the SB ninety one was just everywhere. You know, it was just the thing, and it became kind of almost. It was a joke. Someone told me that whenever ninety-one comes up in the Senate, they, you know, when they do the new bills every year, that's like, oh no, ninety-one. You know, because <laughs> it's like everybody knows about it. Right. But it's it's interesting because there was, I think, a, 
people would generally agree there were some issues, and the SB54 resolved a lot of some of those, or most of those, I guess. But it's still, SB91 is still kind of the, the thing, you know, the term people. Well, well, certainly people talk about it. I find it really interesting because, of course, Senate Bill 91 had more than 100 pages and lots and lots of details and lots of complicated parts of it. And people would study that carefully but but find different things of greater and lesser interest in terms of Senate Bill 91. And what I found was really interesting in the most recent election that there was the campaign in my re-election was very focused on criti- criticizing me for being supportive of all our justice reform efforts, were really, which were really focused on trying to make better use of our criminal public safety dollars and get better results for the dollars we're spending while at the same time improving public safety. And what was what was interesting is I'd see constituents and they'd say, well, you voted for that SB 91. I'd say, I did. And they'd say, well, why did you do that? And I'd say, well, because there's a lot of good things in the bill. And they say, there's no good things in the bill. And I'd say, well, do you think it was good we raised the minimum sentence for murder by, from, from 20 to 25 years? And they, I didn't find a single person who said, oh, that was a bad idea. And I said, we improved the their rights of victims of crime. People said, oh, that's a good idea, too. I asked, did you think it was a good thing that we raised the potential fines for shoplifting? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And I would list five to ten things in Senate Bill 91, and uniformly people would say, well, that's a good idea. Yeah, it almost just became a weird – sometimes that happens where something becomes a symbol right. of you know the car thefts or the other kind of problems, and, and then everybody just said, well, this is because of this. Right. And you know, I think there was other things happening with you know the – Drug usage and the, you know the economy and right. different factors, but so the the fifty four that was twenty seventeen, right? I think was that or twenty yes twenty seventeen. You're correct. Okay, and that this is was, a memory was, test. Was it eighteen? Maybe was it? No, seventeen was fifty four. Okay, and and that basically dealt with some of the was it the car the people kind of what they call catch and release, I guess people that's the term it, people were using. It dealt with a number of number of different issues. Actually, the the complaint of the so-called catch and release was actually dr- addressed in House Bill 312, which is the bill we passed last year, which was a bill that I sponsored. So right now, I mean, there's a lot of the budget got, got passed. So um, there's still a bunch of, I guess there's a const- constitutional amendments. Right. And that's something you guys are going to look at pretty close in the Judiciary Committee, right? I, we we certainly can take a look at those. My sense is that there there aren't the votes on in either the House or the Senate to get to the two thirds that would be mm-hmm. needed to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of legislators, and I think you need what twenty seven, twenty seven in the House and thirteen four, in the thirteen Senate. or fourteen. Thirteen in the, or, yeah, thirteen or fourteen in the Senate. And then it goes to the. So do you know? I'm just put you on the spot here, but when was our last constitutional amendment? Do we? Is it? Have we had any or? If you don't know, I'm, I... The last one, it wasn't an amendment, but every 10 years there is a requirement under the Constitution that there be a question about whether or not we should call a constitutional right. convention. That and always... that's been up in the last three or four elections, and that was voted down by a pretty large margin. I think when that comes up, the concern to a lot of people, the concern I hear from some people is, you, you know, you open that up for one reason, it could all of a sudden open up a whole bunch of other things. I agree. That's what I've heard from. So if that were to happen, the people vote, and then is it, would it be amending the Constitution, or would it, could it be a whole new, I mean, could it be a whole new Constitution? That's a good question. I I think it depends on the powers of a constitutional convention. I, I think they could, 
They could meet and they could propose amendments. They could meet and propose a whole new constitution. But, of course, the proposal doesn't mean it becomes the new constitution or an amendment. They could just meet and propose five amendments or no amendments, or they could meet and say, we've met and we think the constitution is great and we want to make no changes. So if there was that, what happens next? They, they have this new amendment or deal, and then is that, a, is, is that voted on? or is that It would have to get put up to the next uh, vote at the next general election. So that seems like a pretty... Pretty big process. Right. So what else is in the Judiciary Committee? What else is happening? I know that Justin Schneider, is that still, is that kind of? We actually heard Senator, or not Senator, Representative Lincoln's bill to to fix the loophole that the Schneider case, case created. We heard that today in Judiciary, and uh, we we took up one amendment and approved that amendment. I expect we'll take up one more amendment here before before we get finished. So kind of the conventional wisdom around here seems to be that because it took the House a month to organize and the they just passed the budget and the Senate's working on it now. It seems kind of people are thinking mid-May is when the 121-day limit. Yeah, and I think the speaker talked about that on Friday, saying that he thought that we would finish in 121 days but probably wouldn't finish in 90. And since we're on the 91st day, I think he's at least been proven right by one day so far. Here we are. Yeah. Um, so you were, I guess your first term, you were in the minority, right? Correct. And then since then you've been... In the majority, so maybe talk a little bit about. I guess you know you're a chair now, so it's much different. I imagine being in the majority than having a chairmanship than being in the minority. It's different being in the majority, and it's you know you you still have to work hard to get legislation passed. You have to spend a lot of time talking with your colleagues. It's not one of these things where you just walk in and say, "Well, I'm in the majority, and let's pass this bill." Mm-hmm. You still really have to work and meet with folks and convince folks that what you've got is is good legislation and it's good for Alaska. So when you're the chair of the committee, I mean, you, from what I understand, you more, I mean, you kind of decide the agenda. Is that kind of right? Right. We set the agenda and determine which bills are heard and when they're heard and the order in which we hear them. Well, I appreciate you doing the, I know you got to run, you're busy, but uh, great, great, the mining thing is very, I had no idea. I I talk to people all the time and they tell me things where I'm kind of like, oh, I didn't, had no idea about that. Yeah. Yeah. I first came up here to work in a mining camp and. Do you still do law now or are you kind of. Just doing this. Oh, I'm still practicing law. I actually have gone just recently. I was at Lane Powell until the end of 2000, let's see, the end of 2017. And in 2018, I started working in-house as a general counsel to a small timber company. So when you're up here, do you kind of just say, hey, I'll be back when, I, when, I'm, when I'm done? <laughs> well, they they have different issues. And of course, the law stuff doesn't always require them require me to be in the office. And so I can do a lot of stuff remotely. So more often than not, when I'm working on law stuff during the course of the legislative session, it's on evenings and weekends. So you're still working, you're still doing your regular job when you're in the... Right. Wow. Most, uh... But it doesn't interfere with my, my getting work done on legislative matters. I, I really make sure that I take those things up in the evenings and on weekends when I don't have mm-hmm. when I don't have legislative hearings and legislative commitments. Do you go back to Anchorage a lot or do you kind of just... Try, stay... to get, try to get back as often as I can. That's kind of the... the uh, informal agreement I have with my wife is that is that our marriage is really one of the most most if not the most important relationship in our lives and and part of paying attention to that is we make sure we see each other as often as we can she was here this past weekend and I'll be going home for the Easter weekend so we we do our best to see each other as much as possible that's right that's coming up this weekend the kind yep. of long Easter weekend so yeah well I appreciate representative Clayman, former mayor Clayman, assembly member Clayman. you have a lot of titles and I uh, appreciate you doing the podcast, and uh, I know you're a busy guy, so thanks again. And uh, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast in the future, have any ideas, let me know. Representative Clayman, thanks again.
Thanks again for having me and have a great afternoon. Thank you too. Appreciate it. Land.